Hi, Tisha. Hi, Jen. Has it been a while since we've done this? It has. We've had cancellations. I feel out of practice. I feel really out of practice. We haven't gotten back into a rhythm of doing it. Like we, it was intermittent over the summer and we haven't gotten back into like the weekly rhythm of it. So it does feel weird. Like I was literally just looking around like, where do I press record? Yeah. But we're back. But we're here. And we're at episode three of this season, which is exciting. And I don't know, before like anything else, I have to say we made the decision to upload the unedited video footage from all of, uh, from our recordings moving forward. And, you know, if I find the time, I hope to post back catalog stuff of that as well. But we're uploading the unedited video footage to our Patreon, which you have to pay to be a member, but it's only $5 Canadian. So for US folks, that's like three bucks or something super cheap and it just helps to pay for things like our zoom subscription our podbean subscription just there are costs associated with the show and we want to keep doing it and Mm -hmm. so check that out and until i think it's october 5th which could very well be today when this episode launches so maybe i'll extend it but we're offering an exclusive sticker i designed it and it reads unstable like my internet yeah which is basically, I feel like, become like a mantra for the show, this pandemic-founded Zoom era show of ours. (laughs) Because we always get the unstable warnings. Your internet is unstable. While we're recording, we're like, yeah, just just like me. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, that was the long way to get around to say, you should check out our Patreon. It's linked in the show notes. It's on our website. And definitely support us over there. So, teacher, you're like officially into the school year. Are you finding a rhythm at home and at work? You know, this I week know. it's hit me. Like three weeks in, I'm like, oh gosh. Yeah. I got to slow down, not burn out, because this is a marathon. Yeah. And I have been sprinting for three weeks. And this week it's hitting me hard. So gotta, you know what? Say no, take care of myself, get enough sleep, like self-care. And use those like breaks that you do get in your day. Yeah. To like actually rest. To have some time. Like I know a lot of times it's prepping for other parts of your day, but using that time wisely so that you get at least some time to breathe. Yeah. I feel that because I just started a job at a local pizza place, which Tisha was the first person to send it to me and a couple others also sent it to me when the, when the, uh, Oh really? When the guy who runs the pizza place uh, posted it. Oh yeah. You weren't the only one. And I worked my first two shifts last week. I, did work for a few years in restaurants when I was in graduate school and working in film production you're on your feet all day too but I will say it's been a long time since I spent (laughs) hours on my feet and that first day I did my shift picked the kids up from school came home and I work out with my neighbor across the street she's a personal trainer and has built a gym in her garage I was done with all of that at 4 30 at 7.30, I was passed out on the couch snoring. 
and the boys okay looked at my mom and like they all looked at each other and they're like who's snoring and, and the boys were like i think it's the dog and then my mother goes no it's your mom <laughs> so that there's an adjustment could be yeah exactly you know what it's an adjustment and so many of us out there are just i am trying to think of the phrase but we're going through the motions right it's done. and pushing through and we got to take care of ourselves and you know yeah take time to connect with other people Bye. listen to shows like this yes <laughs> or listen to shows like this while you're doing the things. My yes. podcast listening time is when I am making lunches in the morning or cleaning the kitchen or cooking. That's when yeah. I listen the most. Yeah. They call it task pairing. Have you heard this phrase before? Yeah. I, I've heard it from you. Or Like I know of like habit stacking, which is also like I think a similar kind of thing. Like yes. I, I trick myself into drinking more water by saying I have to drink like this jar of water before I can have my coffee in the morning. Yeah. So task pairing is when you pair like an undesirable task with a desirable task. So making lunch, for example, isn't exactly fun, but there's a podcast you really want to listen to. So you listen to the podcast while you're doing that thing. And then it makes your enjoyment of that task so much better. I am known for bringing an iPad into the kitchen and like watching Netflix while I do things in the kitchen. My husband's always like, you really like your technology. I'm like, listen, I could be pissed off because I'm making lunches and washing dishes and cleaning the kitchen. And I've been in here for an hour and I'm just exhausted. Or I could just be happily buzzing along and watching my show while I do all those things. Don't you just want the happy self? There was a time when, like, it was a thing to have a TV in your kitchen. Like, we never did. Like, either little ones that, like, folded down from, like, the thing above or, like, places for TVs. Like, it was for, like, fancy rich people. But, like, people yeah. did have TVs in their kitchens. Yeah. I have, if I'm in a show and I'm binging it. I will definitely bring my laptop into the kitchen. And one of my favorite things to do when I used to decorate huge batches of cookies, I would watch The Office. I've okay, seen it. okay. Because I've seen it, right? So I know it. I don't need to like watch it, watch it. But it was like right. enjoyable background noise for yeah. me when I was doing Love it, it to keep me awake. You know what could be fun though? Is if our guests send us a message and tell us what things they like to do while they're listening to this show. Oh, yes, yes. Do they Thank task you. pair? Well, you're listening I want to know. Are you, are you task pairing? You can email us at thenowuppod at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram or Facebook, Facebook or wherever because yep. um, we want to know if you task pair because I imagine you're a busy human too. This week's episode is with a mom talking about parenting, but kind of parenting through a really unique situation. Definitely one you don't hear about very often. Mm -hmm. And it's with a um, local mom from the school too. So there you go. It's all, it's all in the family. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we're talking with Amber and her story of divorce and parenting through that and grief and all the things. Mm-hmm. You're going to love it. It's going to be great. And yeah. And we recorded this one a while back. We've been sitting on this one, saving it for just the right moment to release. So we yes. hope that you love it. Yes. And 
If you do, when you do, leave us a review. Check out our Patreon and share the show. If you have a friend, share the show. Yeah, that's the best. That and reviews are what help us grow and they don't cost you any money and we will love you forever. Hi, and welcome back to the Now What Pod. I'm Jen. And I'm Tisha. Today we are here with Amber, who is a fellow mom that Jen and I know. She actually lives in Jen's community and her children attend the school that I teach at. It's all very incestuous. Yeah. She actually filled out an application, which of course guests are always welcome to do. And we're just honored that she's willing to share her story with us. So welcome, Amber. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course. Yeah. We love it when people apply to be on the show. And because we feel like we don't have to like force them to do it. (laughs) Not that we force anyone, but. Well, we meet people every single day and you don't know what their story is. And people have stories and they have stuff to share and they have their own wisdom, but you would never know that. So when we go out, sometimes we go and we look for people who are sharing their stories publicly, but there's so many people who have these stories that we just would never know unless they actually apply to be on the show. So thank you (laughs) for that. And we are going to talk about your relationship with the father of your children, Mm who is also your ex-husband. How did you guys meet? So we actually met in grade seven. We had homeroom together at the local school. So him and I both grew up down here. And, you know, I was the good kid who went to class and he was the bad boy. Mm. All right. That's a classic story (laughs) right there, isn't it? Uh, Right? It's like a movie. (laughs) Yeah, that's for sure. So you met him in grade seven, but you didn't start dating then. Um, I mean, we dated as, as you would in grade seven and grade eight, a week here, a week there. It wasn't, I mean, we were friends more than anything. Mm-hmm. We went our separate ways for high school. And then we got back together when we were about 18. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, I was just, I was finishing up high school. He had finished a little bit early. He had gone to a, uh, one of the BTIs in Scarborough and had done a, a couple semesters of co-op and had graduated about a semester early so he was already in the workforce when we when we got back together just for you know us americans what's a bti a business technical institute yeah so it's a high school that's more focused on trades. yeah 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 yeah. that's that's fine i i figured that's what it was but i just thought you know anyway yeah so i mean we were together for about a year and I mean, he, he liked to party. I wasn't much of a partier and he really went downhill in that year. And he started using hard drugs unbeknownst to me. It was never really my thing to get into anything like that. And we ended up breaking up about a year later and he spent, he spent about four months in a rehab facility. He got out of that rehab facility and we got back together a couple months later. And got pregnant with Hannah. Mm. I mean, things were never great between him and I. As far as I knew, he, was, he wasn't using drugs. He was clean. And the more I know about it now, I, I realize that he wasn't. 
you know, a lot of, a lot of things kind of came out of the woodwork after we separated and after he passed away, just little stories here and there that lead me to believe that he wasn't clean while we were together. But in any event, we had Hannah when she was about two and a half, we got married. We bought our first house and we got pregnant with Thomas. And we actually found out we were pregnant with Thomas the same week we bought our first house. So that was kind of nice. The big week. (laughs) Yes, it most definitely was. And then less than two years later, we had Charlie. In that time, we had, we also moved houses. And like I say, things weren't, things were never great. They were okay. But I mean, he, you could tell he struggled. He, he definitely struggled. His, his weight would yo-yo when, when he was, in my opinion, using again. And I mean, he tried, I think he really tried. I think he had, he had a lot of demons. He struggled quite a bit with his mental health. And I think it got the best of him over time. In June of 2017, we separated. And unfortunately, his drug addiction spiraled out of control. And it was kind of off and on. I mean, I know he had tried to get help. He had gone to rehab a few times. He had been in the hospital a few times, but he always kind of wound up back in the same place, the overdose, the, the struggling. Mm-hmm. He saw the kids for the most part on a regular schedule for most of the time we were separated. And then in March of 2021, unfortunately, he succumbed to a drug overdose and he passed away. Mm-hmm. <sighs> it's a lot. It's a lot. Well, and when you referenced stories that you have heard over the time, like since you separated and then since he passed, I know in my situation, there's a lot that comes up after a person dies, Mm -hmm. especially when it's as untimely as Paul and as Warren. And I know our situations are very different, but I definitely personally had a really hard time reconciling with a lot of that. And I don't know if obviously different circumstances, but it's like jarring because you can't do it. Like you can't have a conversation. You can't do anything. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's unsettling because you think you've lived this life, this one life. And it turns out that it wasn't really the life you were living. And it just leads to more questions. You know, what else was going on that I didn't know about? Mm -hmm. What should I have known about? What should I have seen? You know, how naive was I that I didn't, I didn't pick up on any of it. Yeah. yeah, if it does, it, it makes you question your own judgment. Absolutely. And so when you separated, it had nothing to do with the drug use. We separated because things were going downhill in our relationship. Mm-hmm. We couldn't see eye to eye on quite a few things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought things were okay, but he, you know, we, we definitely struggled. We struggled as a couple. There was a lot of arguing. He was very emotionally and at times physically abusive in our relationship. And it got to a point where I had said to our oldest Hannah so many times, don't ever let a man speak to you the way he speaks to me. And one day it just hit me. And I thought, you idiot, what are you teaching your kids? And Mm -hmm. it was pretty much at that moment when I decided I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't do it for me and I couldn't do it for them. I had tried to hold on for so, so long. And it just, it just comes to a point where you have to make that decision. And I had to put my kids first. Mm -hmm. And now in hindsight, you do believe that he was probably abusing drugs for a portion of that time. Yes. Yeah. I don't think I would be any different than you, to be honest with you. Like if my husband were using drugs, I just would never suspect it. I guess like, I don't know if it's maybe a a fault of mine that I always want to see the good in people. 
-hmm. or maybe it's just being involved in a situation where we had kids and we had a house and you don't want to be the one to tear your family apart ever. But also it sounds like you're thinking that the using was kind of going on probably for most of the time that you were together, like whether it was consistently or not, there were the ebbs and flows of it potentially. So then no one moment would stick out. You know what I mean? Like this is when things changed. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't until after we separated that it really hit me. Somebody said something to me one day, you know, she just said like, he's got to be using. And I said, there's no way. And I think I was just in such denial at the time. Like I just didn't want it to be my reality. I didn't want it to be the reality for my kids because I'd seen what it was like with him living in the house. And I'd seen, you know, the the anger and the rage and, you know, the thought of the thought of us now being separated and him having the kids alone without me there, you know, to kind of protect them was a very, very scary thought. Yeah. Because you had always being there I guess to buffer anything like you did say that he was a little bit emotional and could be physically Mm -hmm. abusive but if you were there then you could see what was happening and I could take the kids and leave I I could tell him you know you need to take a break I could tell him I'm going to drive today like just all sorts of things like that that you know you don't you don't have those safeguards in place anymore right yeah and then and you, you know, and you're relinquishing a sense of control over the situation. Absolutely. And it's a very, very scary situation to be in. And then, you know, to turn and, and look at my kids and, you know, Hannah was 10, she wasn't quite 11 yet. And she really had to take on that role of the protector of her brothers and having to sit there and watch her go through that and have to grow up so fast when she was in reality, so, so little. Was it was a, a devastating thing to watch as a mother. Mm-hmm. It would be. And so how did you keep going? I don't know. I really don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I look back on it now and I think about all the stuff. I mean, all the stuff that, that we went through and how we are all still standing and we are all still moving forward is beyond me. Mm-hmm but we're here and we made it. And I just kept telling the kids, you know, we'll we'll stick together. We're strong and we can make it. And Mm -hmm. yeah. How, I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about this because it's your kids experience, but how, how was it all for the kids? I think they almost felt like they were in a tornado. I think, you know, he was very, he was very negative about me. He said a lot of things he shouldn't have said. And I know you, you hear all these things and you read all these things through a separation and even without the drug abuse and the anger, there's that, that component to the separation where you don't want to involve your kids in it. So I tried to walk a really straight line with them. I tried not to say anything negative about their dad. I tried to leave it where it was. Dad's house stays at dad's house. You want to talk to me about it? Great. If you don't, that's fine. But I think it was almost like I had to bring them back to center when they came home. So they'd go see their dad for the weekend. And then for two or three days following that, they were a disaster. And I'd finally get them back. I mean, I certainly don't want to take credit. They would finally get themselves back to a place where they were in a good place and their heads were in the right space. And then they would go back and see him again. And you know what? I don't want to knock him because he did try. 
He really did try at times. The kids did have some good times with their dad. But in general, I think also, though, like I think it's common that those transition days, just from what I hear from other people who've gone through divorce and maybe not as like tumultuous situation as yours, but those transitions are hard. Mm -hmm. Very, very hard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All I know is the whirlwind we were in. Absolutely. And, and there were a lot of other factors at play for sure in your situation. So you had all this time. And then last year when he died, because I'm in a situation where I'm grieving and parenting, grieving children, but your situation was so different, but yet you're still kind of in this similar circumstance now. So what was that like for you? And then how do you support the kids? Because obviously it was, I would imagine, and not that we compare losses, but a much greater loss for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so we had a kind of an added level of complication with his death because he told Hannah he was going to do it. He told her two days beforehand. So it added just a whole nother level of complication to the situation. Did she say anything to you? So she did. She had gotten his mom to get involved. And I mean, he was so far gone, I think at that point that he really didn't understand the gravity of, of his words. Not that it it was her responsibility to get help for him, but more so did she like say something? She did. Yeah. She was a mess for a couple of days. And then, so that was the Saturday night that he had told her. And then on the Tuesday morning, early morning at 345 in the morning, my phone rang and it was Paul's dad phoning me. And as soon as I picked up the phone, I said, oh my God. And he's like, I have something to tell you. And my heart just sank. I, I mean, I burst into tears. I mean, it's so complicated because I burst into tears, not because I was mourning the loss, but because I didn't know how I was going to break it to my kids. They didn't have a dad anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and all I could think about was how, what do I say? And just how are they going to be okay without him? You know, that was probably the worst conversation I have ever had to have with my kids. So what happened was his his dad called me and then in about half an hour, his dad, his mom and his sisters, two sisters showed up in the driveway and I went out to meet them. It's probably about 4.15, 4.30 at this point. And then they asked if they could come in and the five of us sat down and woke the kids up. And we told them what happened. And I really, I really struggled with, do I tell them alone? Do I tell them, you know, with, with his family, do I wake them up? Do I not wake them up? Like, I didn't know what to do. There's no playbook. No. And that's, I mean, that's been the hardest part about all this is that there, there is no playbook and there's no, there's no set Mm -hmm. of rules to follow. So Mm -hmm. we told them and like Hannah I mean, they all really lost it, but Hannah really, she, you know, she said, I knew, I knew he was going to do it. And why would he do that? And they all, I mean, it it was a rough day. Mm -hmm. Of course. That's for sure. You, you mentioned that he struggled with mental health. Like, Mm -hmm. so did he suffer from depression? He did. I mean, he, he had been for most of our relationship, he had been kind of off and on medication for depression and I'm not sure what 
the exact diagnosis was. I never really was. He didn't really openly share that information with me, but he didn't regularly take his medication when we were together. So I don't know if I'm I'm sure that the street drug use didn't help in terms of his mental health. From what I understand, they tend to go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Um, But he, I, yeah, like I say, I don't know what the diagnosis was, but it was something along those lines. He did struggle. He had, like I said before, he had a lot of childhood trauma that I don't think he ever fully dealt with. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know the reason why, you know, the reason why the addiction took him like it did, but my, my hope is that, that, you know, that, that my children can learn something from this. Mm-hmm. It's come up before that we all grew up in a time where you didn't really talk about mental health and especially I think from a man's perspective and a man who like works in the trades and like you know you're supposed to be like a man's man and that makes you weak and whatever happened to you as a child like you're a man now and that's just not an issue and he kind of because I, I did know Paul, like he struck me as that kind of guy. And you guys were born and raised in this neighborhood, which we're in the city, but it is a very small town feel coming from someone mm-hmm. who grew up in a small town that there's that whole piece too, I think, where like, what will people think? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think he thought he was fine. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't struggle with my mental health, so I don't really have much to compare it to. But from what I've read, sometimes when when you're on medication for anxiety, depression, anything like that, you get to a point where you're feeling okay and you think, okay, I I don't need this anymore. And unless Mm -hmm. you have somebody really there holding your hand to tell you you need to continue to do this for, for you, maybe you decide you're okay. I think, you know, it could probably get exhausting. Like, why do I have to take this every day? I feel good. I mean, I can resonate with that with my own medication. You know, I missed today, but I've been okay. Like, it's fine, not intentionally or anything. Not like I don't need it at all anymore, but you miss a day here and there. And and if you're really busy and if you're throwing in other recreational medications, then whether it's intentional or not, forgetting your meds, I would imagine it's not uncommon. Mm-hmm. And then add in the fact that, oh, I'm feeling good, so I don't need this today. Yep. So is that is that what you think sort of happened with Paul? That he wasn't probably taking the right medication? Like I say, I don't know what the diagnosis was, and I don't want to sound like I do. Yeah. Because I don't know really deep down what he struggled with. I think he hid a lot of what he struggled with. Yeah. It was just who he was. And for whatever reason... He didn't really share outwardly a lot of that stuff, especially with me. I think that's probably true for a lot of people. And there's also a lot of people who are self-medicating by using street drugs, right? And you use the drugs so that you don't have to feel and you don't have to think about whatever those things are. And you don't have to talk about them because you can forget about them. And then, you know, unfortunately, I guess some of the unlucky are the ones who get hooked right in with those street drugs. And it's this spiral that they just can't get out of. And there's a big part of me that feels really sorry for Paul. 
because I know that he could be a good dad. I just, the drugs took hold, the mental health took hold, and he just couldn't find a way out. Well, and when you're suppressing everything, I just think of the image of a balloon, which Mm -hmm. is what they do with kids when they're dealing with big feelings. Like you keep stuffing things into it and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. What happens to a balloon? It explodes. Mm -hmm. So you can either explode or I think in Paul's case or in those cases, it's almost like an implosion. Yeah, absolutely. As a human, we can only handle so much. You can only handle keeping so much in and masking so much. Mm-hmm. And I worry about that with my kids. I mean, I've I've really tried to kind of push the issue of therapy with the kids. They've been relatively reluctant to engage, but more more so recently, they've been they've been more willing. Mm-hmm. And that might be something that you know they revisit over time, right? As they Mm -hmm. get older and process things in a different way. So you did wake the children up and you did tell them. Mm -hmm. And I know you mentioned that he had told Hannah that he was going to do this. So Hannah, I guess, knows how he died, but the other children as well. They know. Yeah. I mean, Paul didn't, he didn't hide anything from the kids in terms of his addiction or his feelings or anything like that. So So you were separated for quite a few years, I think. We were, yeah, almost four Um, years. So during that four years, he was pretty open with them. He was, yeah. It was one of the things he always said about honesty. And I think it may have something to do with the the 12 steps, that 12-step program for addiction recovery. Honesty is part of it. And, you know, in my opinion, maybe he took it too far with our kids. They were relatively young and maybe they shouldn't have known everything that they knew, but that was his way of dealing with it. And he told them everything. Right. So they definitely know what happened. His family claims it was an accident. I'm not so sure, especially given the circumstances, but, you know, everybody's allowed to have their own opinion. Yeah. And so what has life been like since then? This is going to sound horrible to say, but relieving. Mm -hmm. Before our separation, when we were separated, he was not nice to me at all. You know, my phone would light up with a text message or an email and it would be some sort of abusive message about how awful I was. And that stopped when he died. Right. And he was saying things to the kids a little bit about you as well. Yeah, he tended to lean on the kids quite a bit emotionally as well. So if he was having a hard day, he would send pictures of himself crying or tell them how lonely he was. And they carried a lot of that around on their shoulders and they felt bad for their dad. Of course. A lot of the time they were put in a position where they kind of had to be the emotional caregiver for him. It started with Hannah for a couple of years and then she got to a point where she said, dad, I don't want to deal with this anymore. And then Thomas became his crutch for lack of a better word and he Mm -hmm. really I mean all of them will tell you he really favorited Thomas so Mm -hmm. he spent a lot of time with Thomas and he would spend a lot of time messaging Thomas and you know so I think I think from that perspective for the kids it was a bit relieving too but it's left a big hole in their heart I think they always they always hoped that he would get better and really deep down I did too yeah I would have loved to have been able to celebrate Christmas with Paul and the kids and just the five of us together. Mm -hmm. But there was no way that was ever going to happen. Not at the 
rate they were going. No, no, definitely not. I mean, it would have been nice to spend birthdays with the kids. I was, there was always a little part of me that was hopeful that he would turn himself around, not for my sake, for their sake. Yeah. And this is a person that, you know, you had loved, you'd known for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming in that, that you knew the good parts of him as well. And Mm -hmm. so I have to imagine that you knew that was in there somewhere. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't seen it for a really long time, but you have that hope that absolutely. And how nice would it be for my kids to see that, you know, you see other people around you co-parenting so well, or at least outwardly co-parenting so well. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And we, we couldn't, we just couldn't. Mm -hmm. Despite best efforts on both sides. And that's not to say that, you know, he's the only one to blame because it takes two to tango, but I did have hope. And when he died, that hope was gone. Mm-hmm. And as you said, for the kids as well, that they always hoped that he was going to get better too. Yeah. Well, as they would, right? Your first attachments are to your parents. Mm-hmm. What is the relationship like with his family now? Or does a relationship even exist? So between the kids and his family yeah. is a great relationship. They see his family about once every three to four weeks. They're good to reach out to plan things and just dinners, birthday dinners or whatever. They see them quite a bit. Things are, I would say, rocky between them and me, but they were rocky in the separation. Right. I think they blame me for a lot of what happened to Paul. And that's you know, a tough burden to carry on my part, because I know that it wasn't me. And I have to regularly tell myself, you didn't make that decision for him. Yeah. I tell the kids all the time, we are not responsible for the actions of other people or the words of other people. We can only be responsible for the things that we do and the things that we say. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you can't carry that. No, but you know, I can see that somebody who's lost a family member in that way might feel angry and might want to blame somebody. Mm-hmm. Especially when you're talking about like parents losing a child. Absolutely. Or sisters yeah. losing a brother. Yeah. But, you know, I think you hear so often about like the, the order of things, right? And, and parents burying a child is yeah. out of order. That's unnatural. Mm-hmm. And in this situation where it seems plausible to have someone to blame whatever that means it makes sense it's crappy but it makes sense why they might feel that way right yeah but crappy for amber to be on the receiving yeah no absolutely well crappy for anybody like crappy for anybody to be on the receiving end of that like it's not fair nothing about it is fair the the funeral was very difficult well i wanted to go back to that because you know we weren't fully locked down but then we went back into lockdown shortly after it was pandemic it was pandemic it was was really pandemic here in Ontario I think it was than like it was in other places yeah so I mean it was a very small it was a very small service his family asked that I didn't bring anybody with me so I wasn't allowed to bring my parents or anybody with me Mm -hmm. which was really difficult for me I really really struggled with it because I knew how difficult that day was going to be for my kids and I knew that I had to be strong to sit there and to support them 
but knowing that I didn't have any support and knowing that everybody else in that room hated me. It was a really, really difficult thing to do to go to that funeral, but I I certainly wasn't going to miss it for the sake of my kids. Yeah. But then you have to go in there and try to hold your head up high. Mm -hmm. And like you said, be strong for your children. It sounds very difficult. Yeah. And I mean, and to sit there and in the moment, you're, you're filled with all these emotions, right? Not only just the loss, but the anger that came out of me in those, those first couple of days after he had passed away. Yeah. Just the, why could you not have pulled yourself together to sit there in that, that funeral home and watch and listen to all of the kind things that they said about Paul was, it was really difficult to hear those things. Because you weren't there. I was not there. At yeah, all. No. And I mean, now I can certainly sit back and reflect on it. I'm like, you know, like he, he was a good guy at times and he could be a good dad when he wanted to be. Yeah. But you know, in the moment I was so angry. I was angry at him for leaving his kids and I was angry at him for leaving me to raise them alone. And I was angry at him for not pulling himself together. Mm-hmm. And how could you not? I sat there and I looked at my kids and just like, how could you take one look at them and not be able to be there for them or make the conscious decision to, you know, to put those drugs in your body, knowing that there's a chance that you might not make it. I just, I can't fathom it. Even as I sit here now, I cannot fathom the idea of doing something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think anger is so, I mean, it's one of the official stages of grief, but I know for my personal experience that's literally the only thing that got me through those first few weeks like that kept me moving forward was just like my rage and my rage was just at life and everything in general but I mean sitting there and you feeling this anger at him knowing everybody else is feeling this anger at you like that just Mm -hmm. because that's where their anger was so it was getting them through like it just all sounds messy yeah so fucked up For sure. And I mean, the anxiety of the day and like leading up to the funeral and I played over in my head a hundred times. What am I going to do if one of them says something to me that's negative? Because I'm not, I'm not good at confrontation and I will cry at the drop of a hat. Mm -hmm. It's just how I deal with things. Mm -hmm. And it was after the funeral, we were still all in the funeral home and the kids had, Paul had been cremated. So they had a big urn and each of the kids individually got teeny little urns. They still have them. They're in their rooms now. And we were standing there and Paul's sister walked up to me and I was holding two urns. And I, I made a comment about the urn. I can't even remember what I said now, but all I remember is she turned to me and she said, well, it's your fault. And my jaw just about hit the floor. And I said, excuse me? Like I didn't even, I couldn't even really get words out for a couple minutes, but eventually I said, excuse me. And she said, yeah, because you said the kids wanted their own urns. And it was just like my throat was closed up and my heart was in my throat. And I just couldn't, I couldn't even get any words out, but it, like I had spent the, the almost the entire week preparing for that moment when somebody was going to say something negative right you just had your backup Mm -hmm. because you just and she didn't it was it didn't come from a place like that but it was the way it came out the way it presented itself it was just like it stopped me in my tracks Mm -hmm. yeah and that's not how she intended it like she wasn't trying to right no no (laughs) but Um, you were just you were there because you you expected it because you you were anticipating it right you and again you were in your anger and they were in and there and like 
anger is never the right place to approach anything like no. being there in that for anything right. but it's just i again it's like it's a stage whatever a stage means of grief for a reason because that anger is just so common whatever your loss is yeah and however it comes around right yeah i mean i think the stages of grief are very very fluid i just finished paying for hannah's braces and it's been like two and a half years now and I paid for every cent out of my pocket. And, you know, the thought of like, you know, why did, why did I have to do that on my own? That sucks. I wish I had had, you know, a partner to do that. Or I have yeah. to pay hockey fees. And I'm like, oh, kidding me. Like, here we go again. You know, the financial burden of raising three kids alone is huge. Yeah, mm -hmm. it is. Yeah. And then also the emotional burden I think is exacerbated in this time that we're living in too regardless of even if you was still here like for, to, for all intents and purposes you would be doing that a lot of that I think you yeah would be I was that weight anyway yeah I mean I um, was financially bearing but, that weight essentially since we separated Right. And then, and even emotionally and all of that as yeah. well, but just in terms of like, do the kids go to school and do we, you know, are we vaccinating them? And like all of that, like personally, and again, different situations, but just, I hated having to make those choices on my own because yeah, there's I mean, no one else who cares as much about those kids for sure. as for their parents. Sure. A lot of the time I'll consult my mom because, mm -hmm. you know, she, she loves them like I do. Yes. Yeah. Um, but the, the I mean, big, they do, but it's different. It's just different. It's though. definitely different. I mean, the big decisions are definitely hard when it comes to the day-to-day -day stuff. I find that it's more sometimes the discipline stuff, you know, because I don't have somebody to bounce things off of. Am I doing everything right? Am I screwing these kids up? Mm -hmm. You know, but when it comes to taking a morning off school, I'm like, well, whatever, take your morning off school because nobody can give me what for about it. So that's kind of relieving that I can make those, you know, those small decisions on my own. But when it comes to the bigger ones, for sure, having somebody to bounce something off of. And not that I really had a lot of that when, when we had separated mm -hmm. before he passed away. Right. And, and to be fair, I, I made most of the decisions on my own anyway, even when we were together. Yeah. But at least, you like know, knowing that you have that, that partner to kind of, yeah, to back you up if you need it. Well, well, and even having that hope that it would kind of turn around, right? Yeah. While you were bearing all of that on your own anyway, there was that hope that it wouldn't always be that way. Right. And now, like, that's, you don't get to have that anymore. I was thinking, you know, after after the funeral and after everything and as you're moving forward and then, you know, we get thrown into lockdown and, like, hockey is a big thing in your family. It is, yeah. And that was taken away from the kids. And I have to imagine... I know the lockdowns and the isolation for us, just in our situation, were really trying. And I have to imagine, even again, prior to this, losing their sports and stuff was a big deal. And I have to, like, what was yeah. that like? I mean, I think, it, I think the losing the sports thing was harder on Hannah. Hannah has really relied on being on the ice to kind of get her through mentally through everything, the separation, through her father's death. So for her, it, it was quite difficult. And Hannah, Hannah's a very social kid. So she struggled quite a bit with, with the lack of, of social contact. I mean, I think the first lockdown was probably the worst 
And because it was the most isolating, everybody was scared. Nobody knew what this mm-hmm. COVID thing was and nobody wanted to go near anybody. And mind yeah. you, the kids also listened a lot more to the rules at that point than they did come <laughs> the third lockdown, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, again, those those decisions, those parenting decisions, do you do you let them see other people? Do you not? You yeah. know, how, how far do you want this to go? I mean, I know, I know there were a lot of situations where hockey was still going on through all of the lockdowns. My kids weren't on the ice during the very strict lockdowns, but when they could be on the ice outside of the city of Toronto, their coaches made it happen and they still got to be on the ice. I'm also fortunate that I have three of them and they can kind of spend time with each other and they could spend time with me, right? It's not like they were only children. No, so, Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, we have neighbors very close. And so it, it was okay. I mean, I don't, I don't, like I said before, I don't have anything to compare it to. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the parenting through a lockdown, through the death of, you know, their, their other parent, it's just, it's been our reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, how do you say what the pandemic would have looked like if Paul was there, like you, you can't make that comparison. You just, no. we don't have that information. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's, I think that happens so often in life that these things kind of happen and we're like, I don't know in any other way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're like, we're just doing what was handed to us. Yeah. Well, you asked the question before, like, how did I, how, how am I kind of still standing? I, I don't know. Yeah. I really have no idea, but here we are and we've just passed the one year mark of his death. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, that was definitely a difficult one year mark. I think there was a lot of anticipation leading up to it. It was his birthday a week prior to his death. And that day really threw Hannah for a really big loop. We had talked about what what are we going to do on the one year anniversary and we had decided as the four of us that we were going to take the day off I wasn't going to work they weren't going to school, and I said we could do something fun we could hang out at home and they just wanted to kind of hang out at home. So that's what we had decided on but they had then they tried to push it and say can we have dad's birthday off too? it guys come on not two days in two weeks we got to choose one let's try and be realistic here, but his birthday was worse than the one year around here. it's those days in my experience it's the days mm-hmm. you don't expect to be hard that mm-hmm. are hard yeah. or it's the anticipation of the hard day that when you look back when you're on the day it's like oh this is okay but those days were really bad yeah yeah the anticipation just, in, was in, definitely... in my experience that that's how it's been for us anyway and then his family reached out and wanted to do like a, a memorial one year kind of dinner with the kids mm-hmm. And I, I was going to respond yes. And then I thought, no, you know what? I'm going to ask the kids. I'm going to see how they feel about the situation. Well, I asked them all independently and the boys were adamant that they did not want to go. They're not in a place where they want to memorialize their dad. I think they feel the loss every day mm-hmm. in their own way. And they just, they don't want to sit around and reminisce. Whereas his family is in a different position and I don't know if it's that the kids are kids and the adults are adults I mean the kids do have young cousins who are similar ages on that side there's four girls and they 
I don't know how they feel exactly because I haven't spoken with them, but I know my kids, my boys specifically, they don't want to sit around and reminisce about their dads in their own way. They do. They talk about them all the time. Yeah. I think it's common, especially with older folks to want to do that stuff and to have these like set times where we talk about a person. And like, I know for us, Warren's just like a part of our day from like oh my god you look just like your daddy there or remember when we did this with daddy and it's just I don't know it's just like in normal conversation but they would never want to just sit down and like I wouldn't say never but generally if they want to like sit down and have that time we like look at pictures and we do but like that's just not I don't think that's how kids work it's yeah I think it's more a child directed thing as opposed to like a planned pre-scheduled thing it's not that a, it's not the formality of like okay we're gonna get together for dinner yeah. on this day and we're gonna yeah. talk about daddy yeah yeah like they they appreciate that I will tell them when they I they do things that remind that me of mm-hmm. dad or you know remember when we did this with dad I feel like for kids it needs to be more organic than that we had an experience when my kids were visiting my in-laws and I think it's hard for them to see the boys because one of them looks a lot like their dad. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine that that's got to be very hard. And I think maybe they thought that the kids didn't hear them talking and, and, you know, having some feelings. And one of them did, and it made him really uncomfortable. They probably don't want to be around that. No. I mean, Thomas will come home sometimes and he'll say, you know, so-and-so said to me that I look, I look just like my dad. And it really will throw him for, for a loop. But if he sits there and he says, you know, does this make me look like my dad or am I acting like my dad? And I say, yes, that's okay to him. Right. And I don't, I don't think it's ill-intentioned from his family at all. I just don't think they understand it from, from the mind of a child who's, who's lost a parent. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I, Mm -hmm. I feel that I felt bad having to say like, you know, they're not okay with this. So I understand why you might feel this way, but it makes them uncomfortable and it might make them not want to come when you want to see them. So mm-hmm. like, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, those, those conversations can be kind of tough to have too, especially knowing that the relationship between his family and I is, is strained. Those mm-hmm. conversations are difficult because I don't, I mean, I, I don't want to strain things any further. But I need to make sure that I put my kids' needs and their wants first. Well, yeah, as as the mother and the only parent, that's your job. And it's not without recognizing what could be hard for them. But when it comes down to it, as their mom, that's your job. Yeah. So where do you go from here? We just keep on trucking. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Exactly. I mean, what can you do? You're dealt the cards you're dealt. And as a parent, especially... Um, it feels like there's so much to lose if you just like stop moving or don't keep going. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I see it in my, in my youngest, he's, he's brought it up quite a lot. He has, I would call them irrational fears, but I don't, I don't know if that's the right way to put it, that he, he has a constant fear of me not being here anymore. Right. I had a bit of an injury at the the ball field on the weekend where I I cut my finger open pretty good and I have stitches in my finger right now. And I was in the hospital for four hours on Saturday evening. And he, he FaceTimed me probably six times. 
mom, are you okay? I said, Charlie, I promise I'm coming home. I just need to wait to get these stitches in my finger. Are you okay? And so concerned, regular mm-hmm. nightmares about, you know, the car going off the bluffs or the car blowing up or, I, I mean, I don't think they're irrational fears. I don't think that was maybe the right, the right word, but they're just these, no, these I... big, big fears. Like you're my only parent left and something's going to happen to you. So it's constant reassurance. Well, that's that, that security, that knowing that your parents always are always going to be there has been mm-hmm. taken from him for sure. Right. He knows that parents can die. Mm-hmm in a way that other children don't and that it can be really sudden too yeah right Mm -hmm. yeah lots of people never consider that their parents could die like lots of children i don't think it ever crosses their mind yeah until their friend's parent dies or something like that but he knows yeah that yeah that people can die not just old grandpas or whatever yeah. right which yeah. is and that's it's a really whatever, unfortunate yeah. reality I mm-hmm. mean a lot of the time in in his sports you know he's if people don't know they come up to him and they say you know how can we never see your dad oh. and you have to have the conversation of I don't have a dad that's what they say and so I try to at least let people know to you know not overshare but you know by the way he lost his dad last year just so that there's no surprises but that's something that unfortunately it's part of the reality now the little I comments mean, can people just not ask things like that not everybody has a dad mm-hmm. i mean my circumstances are different but i grew up without a father and my entire life even as an adult people say things or ask questions like you go to a friend's house and they're like, so what do your parents do? And I'm like, well, it's just my mom. Right. Or they, they do, they say things like, even I meet people now they're like, oh yeah, like where do your parents live? I'm like, well, it's just my mom. (laughs) Right. And I mean, the number of times I've had to explain that is innumerable. I have no idea, but it definitely comes up a lot. And eventually you get really good at just shutting it down if that makes sense but I'm sure it stings every time you hear it I'm sure you know it hurts very frequently I mean we know enough now and it's at least out there enough that people have all different kinds of familial structures Mm -hmm. like what I just it's so anyway that's just my own thing on it because I I worry about that for my own kids I think of it from the perspective of how will my kid feel if it comes up so yeah. I really try and take on that, you know, that, that protective mom role where yeah. I'm like, you know, if, if this person is their coach at hockey or, you know, maybe a friend's parent or something like that, just to kind yeah. of let them know, like, you know, this, this is what happened and kind of is, yeah. you know, and I don't, I'd never go into detail. Um, sometimes people ask, but just, you know, this, he lost his dad and just so you know, kind of thing. And it leads to a little bit of awkward silence, but at the end of the day, knowing or hoping that, that it's not going to come back where somebody says to one of the kids, you know, how come I never see your dad or go home and play catch with your dad? Yeah. You know, that that's comforting enough to, to bring it up. Well, and, you know, it's like, it is inevitable that things like that, I mean, your kids are a little bit older, but 
So, little kid said to Wyatt once, like, I'm going to tell your mom and dad that you took my ball. And he lost it. And, like, normally he wouldn't phase him. But we have those moments where that stuff stings, can sting more. Mm-hmm. And there's days where it can you can handle it more. Mm-hmm. Where you can just say, they live in Scarborough. Or you can just be like, you know. Yeah. I don't have, my dad, like, I don't have a dad. Or my dad died. Or whatever it is. And it doesn't, like, stop you. And then there will be those times that it does. And yeah. It sucks, but it just does, unfortunately. Yeah, we had a situation at school last year with Charlie where a kid was quite mean to him about something along the lines of, oh, I forgot you don't have a dad. And Charlie lost it. I think he must have seen red. His fists went flying. He tackled the kid to the ground. I got a phone call from the principal. And I said to the principal, I'm not sure what you want me to do. Like, I can't reprimand the kid for seeing Red when he lost his dad three months ago or two months ago. You know, I'm sorry that he tackled the kid. I'm sorry that he punched the kid. And I'm sure he's sorry in hindsight. Right. Right. You know, but those emotions are so big, especially at nine years old. Well, and so new. Yeah, so new too. Yeah. And let's be real. He's in the same class with Logan. It's not like those kids aren't familiar with somebody who is in that position. <laughs> yes, for sure. Unfortunately, how yeah. messed up is that? Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is it's one of a... those things like there's no playbook for Charlie on how he's supposed to respond to something like that. And I mean, some days someone might can... say something and it might not elicit that response. And sometimes it will. And like you said, you're going to ground him. Like, what are you going to do about that? I took him for ice cream. It's what I did. Well, because he clearly had a very emotional day. Right. And you're responding to that. Because he's not the type of kid who's going around punching people regularly. So you know that if he did that, it was inspired some by some really big feelings. Right. They can barely control, like, if someone says they're not their best friend that day right right you're like, not invited so... to my birthday party <laughs> yes the birthday party <laughs> but i like to say that dealing with this is like parenting on steroids because mm-hmm. everything you thought you maybe had learned is gone and it's that much more intense yeah. that makes sense but What was your relationship like with Paul's family when you were married? Um, Was it amicable or strange then as well? No, I mean, it it was amicable. They were pretty good to me. They always had an opinion. I always felt like in their eyes, I was never a good enough mom and I was never a Mm -hmm. good enough wife. And maybe that's, you know, my own anxiety getting the best of me, but it was kind of the impression that I always got. I mean, there was one time I took on the the Easter walk that the kids are going to this Friday. There was one time I took Hannah in rain boots because it was muddy, but it was cold. So it was kind of, it was a little snowy. The way the place they go is like almost down in like a valley in a park. So it was relatively snowy down there, but it wasn't snowy up top. And there were many comments made about the way that I dressed her. Right. Little things here and there that kind of just added up over time, but definitely really strained after we separated. Yeah. Which I mean, is to be expected in a messy separation to be very expected. Mm -hmm. Do you foresee any future where you all get along 
I don't think there will ever be a place for me at their table. Okay. Going forward. I really don't. I'm hopeful that maybe one day there will be for the sake of our kids that we can do stuff together. Mm -hmm. But honestly, I don't foresee it happening. I mean, my relationship with Paul's father is probably the most amicable of all of them. Paul's parents are not together. They haven't been since, since Paul was, I I believe Paul was 11 when they separated. Yeah. So, I mean, I could pick up the phone and talk with his dad at any time or his dad's wife. They've always been great, but the relationship with the rest of them is, is relatively strict. So if someone was listening to this episode, what would you hope that they could take away from this? I mean, if I was talking to somebody who was kind of in the throes of it, I'd tell them to just keep going. You're way stronger than you think you are. You have no idea kind of how you can pull through until you're on the other side of it. And I'm not even all the way on the other side of it. I mean, I'm I'm only a year out. Mm-hmm. from his death and I'm only about five years out from from our separation so really I'm mm-hmm. kind of a baby in this process but looking back you know how many hard days we had you know you get up and and as a mom you just you do and you keep doing until the doing is done and then you go to bed and you do it all again the next day mm-hmm. imagine that and then rinse and repeat. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and then you do it all and over again. Because right? as, a, as a solo parent, you're it. If you don't do it, it doesn't get done. I have learned to enlist the help of my children a little bit more. Like, can mm-hmm. you take the dog out? And can you take the garbage out? Things yeah. like that. Yeah. I think you have to. But I find a lot yes. of that I end up still carrying the mental load of, of that to-do list that I give the kids anyway. Well, thank you so much, Amber, for yeah. coming on and taking the time and sharing with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Now What Pod. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. You can find us on social media at the Now What Pod. Until next time, we're Tisha and Jen. Remember, your story matters and you do too.